Take your Bible this morning and open up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 21. John 8, verse 21. And he said, Therefore, again to them, I go away, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. The Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. As he was saying to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I said, therefore, to you, you shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we again are thankful for the opportunity uh, to uh, worship you this morning and to open your word. And we do pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our eyes, that we might see the wonderful things that you have for us in it. That we might come to a proper understanding of truth and reality, to a deeper understanding of your Son, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, obviously, as you can see, we're continuing on in our study here, the Gospel of John, and we've come to a new section of Scripture. Uh, But as I was telling somebody earlier this morning, the theme remains the same. Uh, The theme is the absolute necessity for every man to clearly understand who Jesus is. And then before you die, to believe that truth yourself concerning who he is or or else you will guarantee yourself uh, the fact that you will face God's eternal judgment. The theme of the book of John, the thesis statement, if you will, is repeated over and over and over and over and over again. In a variety of different fashions, but it's always there. It's in every story. It's found again, the thesis statement, John 20 and 31. These things, John says, have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The flip side of that truth is that failing to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to result in your eternal condemnation, your eternal judgment. John 3 and 18 says, He who believes in him, he who believes in Christ is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because, here's the reason, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Most people live their life completely indifferent to the person of God, and most people live their life completely indifferent to the reality of the fact that they have already been judged guilty because of their unbelief. Men do not have any kind of idea of how desperate of a situation they are, or that they are in. So this morning, we're going to start here in verse 21. That's where we left off last time. Because in this portion of Scripture that I just read, three times, uh, in verse uh, 21, once in 21, uh, twice in verse 24, you hear the most terrible words from the uh, most loving Savior. He says, you shall die in your sins, for lest you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And again, something that the Lord Jesus repeatedly says, uh, attempting to warn men to believe upon him while there is still yet time. Because both your eternal destiny and my eternal destiny depends on our belief about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says this, he says, You cannot repent too soon, because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Meaning that as long as you're alive and mentally competent, there is the opportunity to believe upon Christ for eternal salvation. But the second you die, then it's too late and you will be lost forever. And John has been beating this drum, we're eight chapters in, and John has been beating this drum, this one note, over and over again. The necessity for people, for men and women, to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And again, I've told you this repeatedly through our series, that what you think of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important issue in your life, bar none. Now, you've got a lot of issues going on in your life, I'm sure. We've got a lot of issues going on in the world. But what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ is the most important issue in your life. It's not what you think about COVID. It's not what you think about politics or the political leaders. It's not what you think about the economy. It's not what you think about uh, international affairs. Those issues are nowhere close to the most important issue in your life and in my life. The issue, the most important issue in your life that is going to affect you for both time and eternity is what do you think of Jesus Christ? And your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ is not philosophical, it's not theoretical, it's not just some kind of a religious exercise. Your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ determines the destiny of your eternal soul. It is that important. The quality of your life here in time and the destiny of your eternal soul is answered by how you answer the question of who do you think Jesus is. And again, if he's no more than just a mere man, as many believe, if he's just a teacher or a good moral example, a philosopher, a religious leader, or even just a prophet, then you can forget him safely. Just dismiss him. However, if he is God as he claimed to be, and the writer John of this book puts him forth to be, then you must yield your life to him. You must repent. You must call out to him for mercy. Turn from your sin. Worship him. Worship him only. Make him preeminent and serve him faithfully because your life in time and your eternal destiny depends upon it. And if you reject him, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says, you shall die in your sins. Now that really should elicit a response of absolute terror in the mind of the unbeliever. Because the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says for those who reject the person of Jesus Christ, for those who choose not to believe upon him, that they will pay for that error eternally in a literal physical place of eternal conscious torment, a place called hell, a place where Jesus Christ himself repeatedly warned where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A place from which the scripture records the voice of a man in this place of endless agony and remorse without any hope of ever escaping, crying out for mercy and to send someone that they may dip the tip of their finger in the water to cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now, I realize that there are a lot of people who have completely rejected uh, the doctrine of endless punishment and that they do not believe in hell, and I understand that. Because if hell literally exists, then it is far too much of a terrifying reality to even contemplate it. Therefore, what men want to do is they want to block out even considering the truth of his existence and rather choose not to believe that it exists. But as I've told you numerous times, there's a vast difference between what men want to believe reality is and what reality actually is. And every one of us, every man, has only been given the allotted time that they have in their existence in life to figure out what the truth is. And then to submit to that truth, because once you die, you will know the truth with absolute certainty. And what a terrible tragedy it would be to find out when it's too late, after taking your last breath and stepping into eternity, that hell really does exist. It's a real, literal, eternal place with conscious torment, just as God's word uh, warned, and you had repeated opportunities not to go there. But you scorned God's mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you chose not to believe. You chose while you had opportunity not to investigate the claims of Christ. You chose to go on living your life as though God did not exist. You chose to refuse God's warning of a coming day of judgment. You chose to reject the truth that God eternally punishes sin. You chose to believe the lie that you're not personally accountable to God. Therefore, you believe the lie that you can live your life any way you want and make up your own rules for your life as you went along. You choose to 
reject the truth and you chose to not believe and you chose not to accept God's pardon and forgiveness of sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you chose eternal damnation. And Jesus says, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And again, the text says very clearly, for unless you believe. And the responsibility is placed back on man. We who love the doctrines of grace, we love the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the realm of salvation, which is clearly taught in Scripture. That's true. But there's a parallel truth. Every time we come to the subject, I tell you that there's a parallel truth that is inscrutable to us. Uh, the reality that sinners are responsible for their own will. The sinner is responsible for his or her own rejection of Christ. For unless you believe, you will die in your sins. And the evidence of the reality of who Jesus Christ is is more than sufficient to make rejection of him and unbelief inexcusable. I've said it numerous times, it's utterly irrational. Unbelief is utterly irrational. Now, in the context of the story, Jesus, as you know, is in the temple. He's in the temple. He's in Jerusalem. He's teaching during the, uh, or is that the, the Feast of Tabernacles? And again, he's been teaching, teaching the truth, teaching the truth, the way of salvation. And by this time, uh, this is late in his ministry. By this time, the person of Jesus is well known throughout the entire region. People are aware of his ministry. They're aware of his miracles. So all of Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding areas are aware of him. And again, there's not just one or two claims, but there's massive claims, massive evidence to support the claims that he makes to be the Son of God. John says in John 21, 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did. If they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books which were written. Right? So there's a lot of information out there. So it's not a lack of information. There's never been anybody like him on the face of the earth. There's never been anybody who's lived a sinless life. Nobody's ever demonstrated the kind of love that he has demonstrated, the kind of compassion that he has, the kind of wisdom he possessed. There's no one who's ever come close to demonstrate the kind of power that he has. His power is unparalleled. Throughout his ministry, he's repeatedly demonstrated his power over the natural realm, his power over the supernatural realm, his power over both sin, disease, and even his power over death. But Jesus says to the Jewish religious leaders and to all unbelievers by way of extension, John 5 and 40, you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. You're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. That's the unbeliever's position. In spite of all of the evidence, the, unbelievers are, the unbeliever is unwilling to be saved. The unbeliever is unwilling to come to Christ that they might have life. So again, Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching. He, he's confronting, dealing with the unbelief of the Jewish authorities. Again, teaching the truth. Teaching that he is the way of salvation. And then, as I told you, that the Feast of Tabernacles actually points to him. Yet they reject him. They dismiss him. They dismiss his teaching. Look back up to John chapter 7. Back up into verse 14. John 7, verse 14. When it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Verse 15. Therefore the Jews, uh, the Jews therefore were marveling, saying, How is it this man has become learned, having never been educated? Verse 16. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. That's a profound statement. You should underline that. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. A profound statement with immense implications. My teaching is not mine, but but his who sent me. Verse 17, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. I mean, people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus, marveling at him. Even the religious leaders who despise him, even they had to admit, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? I mean, he's never gone to our synagogue. How does he know all this? Jesus says again, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Again, a repeated claim that he has made over and over again that he has been sent from God. And that his teaching is not his own. It is the revelation from him who sent him into the earth, into the world. What does that mean? 
What does that mean that my teaching is not my own, but him who sent me? I'll tell you what it means. It means this. It means there are only two ultimate views of life in the entire universe. There are only two ultimate views of life in the entire universe. The view of life that comes by way of revelation uh, from God himself, the revelation of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the view of life that comes from men. Only two views of life. And we either submit ourselves to the revelation of God found in the Bible and found through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, or we dismiss Christ in total and reject what he says. And then we roll the dice, as it were, and base our life and our eternal destiny and our futures on our own opinions, our own ideas, or the ideas and opinions and speculations and suppositions and imaginations of other fallen men. Only two possibilities. Only two views, only two categories. We either humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the revelation from God through Christ, or we reject divine revelation. And we risk our eternal destiny on what we think reality is, or what we think truth is, or what other men tell us to believe. And again, those are the only two options. That's why when a man stands in a pulpit and speaks, he either speaks from God, for God, expounding God's word, repeating God's word, or he gives his own opinion. There's no middle ground. And obviously what each of us need is desperately, need desperately is to hear from God's truth. We need to hear the revelation of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem with men in sin, the supreme problem of unbelief and unbelievers is pride. Again, unbelief is never based on the issue of evidence. Because unbelief is never satisfied with evidence. There's never enough evidence for the unbeliever. Even in the presence of many witnesses, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, men still refuse to believe. Even when Jesus Christ himself died and raised himself from the dead, men still refuse to believe. That's nothing more than pride. Unbelief. The arrogance of falling man believe, fallen man believing that they are God unto themselves. There's no God but them. The arrogance of fallen man thinking that he alone has all knowledge, that he has all wisdom. Pride of education, pride of intellect, pride of achievement makes them self-sufficient. The modern intellectual man rejects divine revelation to his own eternal demise. He says he doesn't need God. He has a great understanding apart from God. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need anything because he understands everything. He's autonomous. That's modern man. That's unbelief. Entirely self-sufficient, entirely self-centered, glorifying himself, refusing to glorify God. That's why the unbeliever rejects Christ. You are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. The unbeliever is not willing to come, and the unbeliever is not willing to do the will of God. Now, I say that all by way of preface, just to make sure that we understand clearly unbelief is a moral issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's not an evidence-based issue or lack thereof. Man himself bears the responsibility for not believing. And that's because man does not want God or Christ to rule over them. The unbeliever is not willing to do the will of God, therefore they choose unbelief. And again, I say you either base your life on uh, your view and your, your view of life, your view of death, by your own opinions and risking your own eternal destiny. You gamble your eternal destiny based on what you think your own thoughts are, your own opinions, or the opinions of other fallen, finite men, or you listen to the Word of God. You submit yourself, you humble yourself to the Word of God. Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. Jesus says, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. So again, here in the context, Jesus is in the temple, he's teaching during the feast, uh, he's teaching the truth, teaching the truth uh, concerning who he is, that he is truth incarnate, God incarnate, and the Jews are rejecting him. The religious leaders. They are rejecting his teaching, they're rejecting him, and they're actually seeking to kill him. 
context of the story, there's a much grumbling about the mul- uh, among the multitudes concerning him. Some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying, well, no, no, no. Uh, on the contrary, he's leading the multitudes astray. Others were saying he has a demon because that's where unbelief leads. Unbelief leads to all kinds of confusion. In spite of the fact that when Jesus came, he only spoke the words of God the Father, the one who sent him. In spite of the fact that Jesus, when he spoke, he only spoke, spoke in a manner that glorified the Father. In his teaching there in the temple, he has offered himself as the fountain of living water for thirsty souls to come and drink from. John 7, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And the last time that we were together, we saw that Jesus, again, still in the temple teaching, uh, declared that he was the light of the word, uh, light of the world. John 8, verse 12. John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's an unmistakable claim to deity, an unmistakable claim to be more than just a mere man. But in fact, God in human, fle- God in human flesh, the great I am, as God described himself repeatedly in the Old Testament, a claim to be deity, a claim to be the I am, a claim to be the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the only Savior of the world, the only light of the world, the only hope of mankind. And again, I am is a very definite statement in reference to God of the Old Testament. And the fact that he claimed to be the light of the world, another metaphor used in the Old Testament referring to the person of God. God who promises to be a light to those who walk in darkness. Uh, again, light being another repeated metaphor uh, of uh, God in the Old Testament and the light that shines into the darkness, a repeated Old Testament uh, metaphor and prophecy speaking about the coming Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm that one. Darkness, obviously a metaphor for men trapped in their sin, their own sin, and a cursed, uh, fallen world in rebellion against God. And Jesus says, look, I'm the light of the nations. I'm the light of the world. I'm the only light. I'm the only one that can shine light into the darkness. I'm the only one who can bring prisoners out trapped in the sin from their dungeons. I'm the only one who can speak to those from their prison cells or into their prison cells of their own sin. I am God's salvation, so that God's salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And you might remember last time we went through Scripture after Scripture in the Old Testament, looking up references to all these truths that Christ has claimed for himself. The fact that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all, and Jesus says again, I am the light of the world. There's absolutely no mistake about it. I mean, the Jewish religious leaders, in the context of the story, they, they understood his claim very clearly. The fact that he was declaring himself to be God, the fact that he was declaring himself to be the promised Messiah, the fact that he was offering himself to men, to sinners who are hopelessly lost in a dark world in their own sin and corruption, to offer them hope and help, to offer them his presence, his protection, his guidance. John 12 and 46, Jesus says, I've come as a light to the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And again, John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. You know, all Jesus spoke was truth. All he spoke was truth, yet men chose not to believe. And the rejection of him was inexcusable. Verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, again, in spite of all of the evidence, because, again, we're almost we're six months from the crucifixion, so we're well over two and a half years into his ministry. So in spite of all the evidence, men chose not to believe the truth. They dismiss it outright. Again, why do they dismiss it? Is it because of a lack of evidence? The answer is no. It's just nothing more than sheer pride. Nothing more than a love for sin. Again, the religious leaders, they thought they had all the knowledge and truth in themselves. They don't need anybody to tell them the truth. They certainly don't need this man who they, again, held in contempt and scorn. We don't need this fellow, this one whom they hate, this one whom they want to murder and shut up. It's pride. Pride of intellect. Pride, again, thinking that they themselves do not need a Savior. That's where most men find themselves. 
John 3 and 19 says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. This verse applies in the context to the religious leaders of Israel just like it applies to all men. It's a universal truth. Light has come into the world, men love darkness rather than, than light because their deeds are evil. And again, these religious leaders think a lot of themselves. Think about their, their life. I mean, these guys have spent their entire life studying the Scripture. They've studied every line, every word, every letter. They had a fanatical preoccupation with the, uh, the Scripture. They took great pride in their study, great pride in their intellect, great pride in their great learning, and they completely failed to grasp the Scripture's main theme. Right? They spent their entire life studying the Old Testament Scripture, and they completely failed to grasp the Old Testament Scripture's main theme. That's a pretty big miss. That's a pretty big waste of your entire life. To study the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture and miss the entire point of the Scripture. Because the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture points to the person of Jesus Christ, the one who stands in their presence. They missed all of the fulfilled prophecies concerning the person of Jesus in their presence. They missed all of the types pointing to him. They missed all of the ceremonies that spoke to him in his ministry. They missed everything that the Old Testament said that pointed to him concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3 and 24, the law or the Old Testament has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Paul says when we properly understand the truth, when we properly understand the Old Testament text, it's going to lead us to Christ so that we stop trusting ourselves and start seeing the fact that we need a Savior. He's that Savior. The Old Testament, if properly understood, says we can't do anything to make ourselves right before God. We need God to intercede. We need God to come and cover our sin. And the only way that he can come and cover our sin is if God steps into time. And the only way that God can come and cover our sin by stepping into time is to become our substitute. We need somebody who's the perfect substitute. Perfect man, perfect God in one, that being the Lamb of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in their pride and their arrogance, they missed him completely. Jesus said back in John 5 and 39, you search the scripture because you think in them that you have eternal life. And these things bear witness of me. And you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you're bearing witness of yourself. Back in John 8, your witness is not true. Verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I've come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I've come from or where I'm going. I mean, the religious leaders, so-called of Israel, knew nothing about the true, the true God. They knew nothing about the Christ. Verse 15, Your people are judging according to the flesh, but I'm not judging anyone. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Verse 19. So they were saying to him, where's your father? I mean, again, it's not only an affirmation, a complete rejection of the affirmation of two witnesses that Christ has just produced to back up the claim of his deity. It's actually a slur. Where's your father? It's a slur. It's a scornful expression of contempt and insult. It has demeaning overtones uh, as to the particular nature surrounding the, the, the facts of the birth of Jesus, suggesting perhaps that not even Joseph was involved in the situation, not even his own father, right, that Jesus was illegitimate. Nobody really knows. Where's your father? Nobody really knows. And you see that accusation made down in verse 41 of the text. Verse 19 continues, Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, then you'd know my father also. A statement that is not only true about the religious leaders, but really it's a statement true about all mankind. That's the root of our problem. That's the root of the problem of the entire human race. We're all born sinners. We're all born alienated to God. We don't know God. We don't know God. We don't understand how holy God is, and we don't understand how sinful we are. That's where it starts. 
we have no concept of God, how holy he is, and no concept of the understanding of how sinful we are. Therefore, we don't understand the desperate strait or in the desperate situation that we're all in. Nor can we unless we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the word of God. Unless we reject what men say to be true, unless we reject our own opinions, and again, unless we humble ourselves under the revelation from God himself, we will remain lost. You will remain lost eternally. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one sees him because his hour had not come. As I told you, he's under a divine timetable, not man's timetable. Now verse 21. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He said, therefore, again. So this could have been something that he routinely said to unbelievers. Where I am going, you cannot come. We know for certain, he said it back in chapter 7, verse 34, you shall seek me and shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? Uh, Verse 36, what is this statement? He said, you will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Right? So Jesus says, look, I'm going to go away and you're going to seek me and you shall die in your sin for where I'm going, you can't come. Well, that's pretty straightforward. That's pretty sit up in your chair and pay attention. You shall die in your sin. It's a very stern warning, a very direct and blunt warning. I go away, you shall seek me, you shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Well, where, where is he going? Where is he going that they cannot come? Well, they haven't been listening, but if you have, you might remember back in chapter 6, he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. Over and over again, he repeated that statement, I've come from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. Chapter 7, verse 33, for a little while For a little longer I am with you, then I go with him who sent me. I go away, you shall seek me. Where I am going, you cannot come. You shall die in your sin. Again, they had no understanding of truth. No understanding of God the Father. No understanding of true righteousness. No understanding of what Christ was speaking about. No understanding of him. So again, where is he going that they can't come? Well, where he originated where he originated. That's heaven. And as I told you previously through this series, heaven's not for everyone. Heaven's not for everyone. The religious rulers of Israel were a self-righteous group. Therefore, they saw no need of Christ. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, towards the end of Christ's ministry, he gives them an absolutely scathing rebuke, these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees. And he pronounces upon them damnation after damnation, woe after woe. Matthew 23, verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. You do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You devour widows' houses. You travel about on sea and land and make one proselyte. And when he becomes one uh, like you, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Verse 17, you fools and blind men. Verse 23, hypocrites. Verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 28, even so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, just a scathing rebuke. Verse 31, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? He just took it to these self-righteous, evil, wicked, so-called religious leaders of Israel. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away and You shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin, for where I'm going, you cannot come. He's headed back to heaven. And the self-righteous, evil, wicked Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, aren't going. Where I'm going, you cannot come. They're not going to heaven. The reality is they're destined for hell. Again, a literal 
place of unending eternal physical conscious torment, a place where there's no escape, no hope of escape, and a place for throughout eternity your suffering will continue because you're still sinful. You're still sinful, and eternally you're still sinful, and you're always sinful, so for all of eternity you're still going to be paying for your sin. Always pain. Always bitter. With an ever-accusing conscience that has no relief, that's why there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and anguish beyond description, because you didn't have to be there. But you chose to be there. Because you chose to reject the Savior. Listen again. I go away and you seek me. Implied you'll not find me. Don't you think the people in hell want relief? Don't you think people in hell want to be delivered? But they never will be because it's too late. It's too late. You only have the allotted portion of time that God has given to you to figure this out. And it's presumptuous sin for you to think you're going to live a long time. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away, you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So I don't know if you know the title of the sermon this morning. One of the ways that you can make sure that you die in your sin, one of the ways that you can make sure that you go to hell is you just keep trusting yourself. You just keep trusting your own wisdom. You just keep trusting your own ideas, your own understanding of life and eternity. You just keep trusting in your own self-righteousness. You just keep trusting in your own supposed goodness. One of the ways that you can make sure that you go to hell and die in your sin is you just keep comparing yourself to others in the room around you and pat yourself on the back, tell yourself what a good job you've done and how good you are because you're not bad as so-and-so over on the other side. But the Bible says that other men aren't the standard. The Bible says that Christ is. And the Bible says that all men have fallen short of the perfect holiness of the perfect Savior, that being the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a surefire way to make sure that you die in your sin, spend eternity in hell, remain in your self-righteous rebellion against the truth, against the Savior, reject revelation, reject the warning, and just keep trusting yourself. A few weeks back, maybe it's a few months back now, I can't remember, I preached a sermon entitled How to Go to Hell. So I'm getting some good titles here. No doubt a provocative title, I got that. The question would be, why would any pastor teach a sermon on how to go to hell any more than why would a pastor teach a sermon on how to die in your sin? Answer, as a warning. As a warning. The same thing that Jesus Christ is doing in this portion of Scripture. Warning. Warning the religious leaders. And here, by way of extension, all unbelievers, you shall die in your sin. Now, nobody's going to intentionally go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. But hell's going to be full of sinners who fail to repent, fail to repent and place their faith upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is going to be full of sinners who have rejected divine revelation and in great error entrusted their souls to their own fallen human wisdom or the wisdom of other fallen men around them. And again, hell is a place from which there will be no hope of ever escaping. Again, a place, a literal place of endless conscious torment and agony, a place of remorse, a place of anger, a place of despair, because it is a place of those who have been deceived. It's the place of the deceived. Deceived by their own sin. Deceived by Satan himself. Deceived by the error of listening to other fallen men around them around them in time and rejecting the word of God. I'm telling you, it's not changed from the beginning. We're back in Genesis 3. Indeed has God said. And I'm telling you, by way of absolute truth, God knows how to speak. Words mean something. 
God does not stutter. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away, you shall seek me and shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 22. Therefore, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You know what? Right there is the spirit of their self-righteousness. It's right on full display. Why? Because they were convinced if anybody was going to heaven, they were. They were convinced if anybody's going to heaven, they were. In reality, they're on their way to hell. Now, to our ears, perhaps it sounds a little odd that uh, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. I mean, how could they jump to that kind of a conclusion? Answer, because of the rejection of the truth. Because when you reject the truth, all that remains is irrationality. Subpoint: tell myself, don't run a tangent here, but just look at the culture. When you reject the truth, every decision made downstream reflects that error. The pollution comes from that one source. Therefore, when you reject the truth, all you have is chaos and uh, uh, irrationality. The Jews were saying, surely he's not going to kill himself. Well, how do they jump to that conclusion? Well, because the Jews believed in their culture that if somebody killed themselves, somebody who committed suicide, they're going to go to the hottest place in hell. Again, they thought they were righteous. They thought they were on their way to heaven. And Jesus is telling them, where I'm going, you're not going to come. So maybe the, maybe they thought, maybe he's going to kill himself. Maybe we can just, uh, he'll at least do us a favor here and we can get rid of him uh, a little bit sooner, right? Because they wanted to murder him. But it's irrationality. It's personal chaos. That's what their rejection of the truth led them to, an abandonment of anything, any kind of understanding of reality. Again, see the culture in which we live in. So Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And again, in great error, they mockingly suggest that Jesus probably is thinking about killing himself. In that case, they thought, boy, this is good because he's going to go to hell. Again, smugly self-righteous. They think they're on their way to heaven when the reality is where Jesus is going, they cannot come. They're on their way to eternal judgment. Because unbelief has shut to them the door of heaven. Unbelief has shut to them the door of heaven. Where I'm going, you cannot, you cannot come. It's emphatic. I go away, you shall seek me, you shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So again, Jesus, who's come from heaven, is going back to heaven. Something these self-righteous Pharisees will never see for themselves. They have not only rejected Christ, but having missed the entire point of the Old Testament that we need a Savior, they have taught and believed a damning legalistic system of salvation by human achievements, salvation by human performance, good works, failing to completely understand the truth by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Again, the standard to get into heaven, if you wanted to get into heaven, I'll tell you how to get there. You've got to be perfect. Not close, perfect. The standard of heaven is perfection. You break one law one time during the entirety of your life, then you're guilty of breaking all of God's laws. That's what it says in James 2 and 10. One act of rebellion, one thought of rebellion, one instance of not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It takes just one. Standard of heaven is perfection. The Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. The Bible says there's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. The Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory. All fall short of the perfection. And again, the self-righteous aren't getting into heaven. The unconverted, those who are not pardoned, those who have not been forgiven, those who have rejected Christ and uh, and have trusted their own righteousness cannot come. They will die in their sin. So the Lord Jesus pays no attention to their mocking words. He just presses forward, verse 23, and he was saying to them, you are from below and I am from above. You're of this world and I am not of this world. In essence, saying we have no harmony. There's nothing in common between you and me. Again, the distance between ourself as fallen men in sin and God is infinite. 
There's no way possible to bridge the chasm. There's no way possible for good deeds to bridge the chasm. Isaiah 64 and 6 says, All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag in God's sight. All of our righteous deeds throughout our entire life could not pay for just one sin. And just one sin is enough to condemn to eternal hell. And stop and think about it. We haven't committed just one sin. We've committed thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sins, uncountable. And again, the only people that are going to heaven are perfect people. And since no man in and of himself has perfection, the only people that are going to heaven are those who have a perfection borrowed. A perfection borrowed, a borrowed righteousness. The only people who are going to heaven are those who recognize their personal bankruptcy, their desperate need of a Savior, and have by faith received the imputed righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The imputed righteousness that does not belong to him, but comes only from the person of Jesus Christ. This one whom they are rejecting. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He was saying to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. The word world there is cosmos, and in the context it refers to the invisible uh, spiritual system of evil, that system that opposes God. In the words of 2 Corinthians 10.5, every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. That's who he's talking about. The world that is under the control of Satan himself. 1 John 5 and 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The system that promotes and encourages the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful, the boastful pride of life. The system that loves darkness rather than light because men's deeds are evil. The world is the realm of mankind that are alienated from the life of God because of their sin. And as a result, those who are in that system, under that system, they can't see Christ. Can't see Christ, they can't understand Christ, they don't hear Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. The reason the religious leaders rejected Christ, the reason all unbelievers reject Christ, is because they're from this world. And this world utterly opposes the truth. This world utterly opposes Christ. This world is disobedient to God, disobedient to Christ. And just in a few verses here in this chapter, verse 44, chapter 8, Jesus is going to lay a scathing rebuke, another one, on these religious leaders. 8 and 44, you're your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand to the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie of his own nature, for he's a liar and a father of lies. But I speak the truth, and you don't believe me. Why? Because you're of the world, and you belong to your father. That's why they rejected him. That's why the world continues to reject Christ. They are of the world. They are of their father, the devil. That's why James warns us, you adulteress, uh, adulteresses, James 4 and 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You might want to check your methodology if you're one of those guys that think you need to get with the world to win the world. You might just want to check that by way of Scripture. First John 2 and 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'm from above, you're from this world. You're from below, I'm from above. I mean, the Lord was always talking about the fact that I am not of this world, I'm from above. Eight times so far, the way I counted them, at least eight times so far up to this point, in the book of John, he has identified that fact, and he's going to do so at least 11 more times in the book. You're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. And guess what? That's tremendous good news for us who are in Christ. Those who have repented by God's grace and who come to a saving knowledge of the truth, because just like Christ is not part of the world, we're not part of the world, amen? 
We are not part of this world. We who are in Christ. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. That's tremendous encouragement for us. And that gives an explanation for, again, the irrationality and the chaos in the world, the kingdom of darkness, and and for the confrontation between us who are representatives of the light. I chose you out of the world. I chose you out of the world. You're not of the world. That's why the world hates you. So again, Christ says, look, if anybody wants to be delivered from this present evil world, then they have to believe upon the person of Christ. They have to believe upon him. Because unbelief blocks the door to mercy. And like any man, these Jews whom Christ is speaking to could have been delivered, delivered from this present evil world if they would have but repented and believed upon Christ. Verse 24, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Again, it's not just self-righteousness. It's not just worldliness that, that damns people. It's straight up unbelief. And the way we should read that really is this, for unless you believe that I am. I mean, I think almost all of your versions have the next word, he italicized. That word's not there in the Greek text. It's not present. Translators put it there to try to make the sentence read easier in English. It literally reads here, for unless you believe that I am. What's that? Another unqualified, undeniable, direct claim to deity. Again, I am is the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, right? Often the transliteration of Yahweh, the name that God used to Moses when Moses, uh, God sent Moses to the, to the nation. He said, who shall I say sent me? He said, I am who I am, Exodus 3 and 14. The Septuagint, when it, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it uses the phrase uh, in uh, Exodus uh, uh, 3.14, I am who I am, it translates that phrase as ego ami. Same phrase that Christ uses here in the Greek in John 8 and 24. Ego ami, I am. I am from below, or you are from below. I am from above. You are this world. I am not of this world. I said, therefore, to you, you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. The NIV is helpful here. It says, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Now, the Jews of the day completely understood what he was saying. They're not confused because God knows how to speak. You only have to go and get educated somewhere not to understand what God's word says. They understood it. They understood perfectly he was claiming to be God. In fact, they understand it so well by the end of his teaching here in the temple in verse 59. Verse 59 says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they want to kill him. They want to kill him. They want to shut him up. They want to stone him for blasphemy. It is pretty ironic. While the Jews of the day perfectly understood exactly that he was claiming to be God, you have modern cults such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, quote-unquote, who can't seem to figure it out because they insist Jesus was only a created being. He claimed to be deity repeatedly. Jesus says, if you don't believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. If you don't believe the reality of who I am, God incarnate, the second, the eternal second person of the Trinity, born of a virgin, one who lived a sinless life, one who died on a cross of Calvary as the substitute, the only substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all those who would believe, that arose from the dead and ascended to the Father in heaven, and now intercedes for his people, and one day is going to return from heaven to this earth in glory and to conquer it and to set up a kingdom in time to wipe out all of his enemies, making his enemies a footstool, and then wipe the whole thing out and then rule for eternity. Unless you believe that I am he, you cannot be saved. Not my words, his words. His words. Jesus said, therefore, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. I mean, the unbelief is what bars the door to heaven. Unbelief, it's unbelief that keeps men away from God's mercy. Because again, it says, unless you believe that I am. And again, the evidence is everywhere. 
The reality of the truth is undeniable. Unless you believe that I am. And that word unless is the only hope of escape from God's coming, God's coming wrath, from God's coming condemnation and judgment upon sin. Unless. Again, it's an amazing statement. It's kindness, again, coming from Christ to these religious leaders, warning them. But they're offended by him. They're offended by his teaching. They don't see themselves as sinners. And Jesus said he's come to seek and save the lost. They, they're offended by his teaching that Jesus would infer that they're worldly. Most certainly here in a few verses that they are of uh, their father, the devil, that the father is their devil, that they're under the prince of the power of the air. They've actually been duped by Satan. They're headed to the same eternal hell where he will spend. They've trusted in their own efforts, their own works, their own righteousness, their own goodness, their own morality, their own religion, their own ideas, rather than exclusively trusting in the person of Jesus Christ, God's only Savior and light to the world, who is standing in their very presence. They're offended by him. He's from above. They're still of the world. Trapped in this world system, its ideologies, its religious lies which will be the ruin of the entire human race apart from Christ. They're part of this invisible, evil world system that opposes God. And they're offended by the reality of who he is. Because, again, he's God incarnate. Jesus, therefore, said, You shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. You know, the reality is everything's pretty simple in the world. Pretty simple. Your eternal destiny depends on what you do with the person of history, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Refuse to believe who he is, and he says, by way of authority, you will die in your sin. You say, well, I don't, I don't believe it. I reject that. Let me tell you what I believe about Jesus. Let me tell you what I believe about life. Let me tell you what I believe about death and eternity. You start giving your opinions. You start giving your thoughts. You start giving your ideas. You start giving the ideas of men that you've read, men around you. You say, Jesus Christ says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Jesus Christ says, you shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be, you shall die in your sin. Again, reject the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have assured for yourself eternal damnation it is that simple because it does not matter what you say it does not matter what i say it doesn't matter what the complexity of uh, religious systems and so-called religious gurus around the world say about life and eternity the only thing that matters is what jesus christ says and jesus christ says you shall die in your sin for unless you believe that i am you shall die in your sin Pretty straightforward. Verse 25. So they're saying to him, who are you? Who are you? I personally think it's somewhere along the lines of who in the world do you think you are? Who are you? Who are you to tell us that we're going to die in our sins and go to hell? I mean, again, if anybody's going to heaven, these guys were convinced they were the only ones. They believed it was them. And the audacity of this man, who are you? These are the most proud, arrogant, religious, stupid people on the entire planet. And Jesus has just told them, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. Unless you believe the reality that I am God incarnate, you're on your way to eternal hell. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what I think. It matters what Jesus Christ says. So again, he says, they say to him, who are you? Verse 25 continues, well, what have I been telling you from the beginning? What have I been saying to you from the beginning? From the beginning of what? From the beginning of my ministry. I mean, for all throughout his ministry, he told them nothing but the truth. And all along his ministry, all they've done is reject the truth. This is nothing more than willful ignorance. 
This is nothing more than hardness of heart. This is nothing more than hard-hearted unbelief, prejudiced unbelief. Unbelief and an absolute rejection of the evidence. Who are you? You might remember at the end of last time together, uh, I shared with you uh, out of John 11. In John 11, the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus Lazarus has been in the tomb dead for four days. It's without question. It's an undeniable fact of reality. And Jesus raises him from the dead, and he does so in front of many witnesses. Therefore, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead by the person of Jesus Christ is also an undeniable reality of the demonstration of his divine power. Right? Well, if you're not convinced, the religious leaders were convinced. The religious leaders recognized his divine power. John 11, verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? Listen to these words. For this man is performing many signs. They do not deny it. What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. And what are they going to do in response to that reality, in response to the divine power of the person of Jesus Christ? It's undeniable. Verse 53 of that chapter says, So from that day on they planned to kill him. That's the hardness of unbelief. That's the fact that men don't want to know the truth. Men reject the truth. 